please be seated. Since we have a very short reading this week, I hope you don't mind that I'm reading to you to save the transition time. So the verse is Proverbs chapter 19, verse 24. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth. Good morning, everyone. Let's uh, pray as we begin. Uh, dear Father, we pray that you would be with us as we turn to your word. Please help us to understand what you are saying to us and help us to uh, live out your word in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, here we are looking at a single proverb. Now, one of the reasons why I love the book of Proverbs so much is that you can actually engage with the one book in so many different ways. And so uh, it reminds me a little bit of the full experience that I actually hope to have later on in Father's Day lunch, uh, just in a little while, of eating Peking Duck, the Chinese restaurant. Now, I'm sure you know the classic Peking Duck pancakes. There they are, delicious. But there's more, because in the full experience, uh, you realize that that actually only uses the skin and a little bit of the meat of the duck. Actually, the bulk of the meat is um, uh, cut off and then used for a second dish, which is duck noodles. Mm. And then, they haven't finished there, they then take the carcass and the bones and make this rich soup as a third course, duck soup. Oh, can't wait. <laughs> and uh, I actually think that is a little bit like the book of Proverbs. You can enjoy it and be fed by it several different ways. And so, uh, through our series, you would have seen we've done our usual practice of working through a section, like some of the poems in the early chapters, where we actually try and cover a chapter. Maybe that's a bit like the duck pancake that we know. Last week, uh, Walt showed us that you can actually trace a theme across the book as we thought about relationships and marriage, maybe the noodles. And today we are soup, okay? And we're going to look at how to approach a single proverb. And uh, it's a less well-known one, Proverbs 19.24. Let me read it out again. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He doesn't even bring it back to his mouth. And uh, I chose this uh, proverb because it highlights a big challenge with many of the proverbs, and that is, what the heck do you do with them? So it's like you read this one and you go, okay, um, finish everything on your plate. I don't know. Have a great day, everyone. That's all I can make of it. Uh, what does this proverb have to do with anything? Why is it in our Bibles? If, we, if I can put it this way, what does this proverb about a slob have anything to do with the Son of God? So I want to think about what a proverb is and why God might have included this genre in particular in his word to us. So as you are, would be very familiar with, um, a proverb basically is an analogy that is a short, memorable saying about an area of life that's meant to evoke a similar dynamic in another, in another area, so you benefit from the resonance. And their simplicity actually lets you pack in a lot of profundity if you give it time to brew. So, for example, one of our proverbs, a stitch in time saves nine. Um, and, uh, you know, your T-shirt gets a tiny little rip, sewed up straight away, one quick stitch, done. Leave it, the rip gets massive, and you need nine, right? Heaps more effort. But it's not just about sewing, it's about life. Acting when a problem is small saves you a bigger hassle down the track. So, for example, your email inbox. 
Uh, easy, quick, clear, at 10 or 20 messages, leave it as I did, a few months or even years, and it gets to 10,675, which is too much to even contemplate. Or, you know, a little bit more serious, what about a relationship that's getting difficult? You do small things to smooth it over now, it could save the entire relationship before it's too late. So, a stitch in time saves nine, actually a pretty good approach to life. Get onto things while they're manageable, so they don't spin out of control. So that's how a proverb works, including biblical proverbs, but with one massive difference. And that is while most of our secular proverbs are about um, success in earthly life, biblical proverbs run much deeper and get us to meditate deeply and passionately on how we can tune our hearts to the character, plans and purposes of the God who made us and saves us for eternal life. So let's get into it, and I've got three points from Proverbs 19.24. Sloth is spiritual apathy, sloth is deadly idolatry, and fight sloth by resting in the Lord before we uh, gain wisdom from the sluggard. So, first, sloth is spiritual apathy. Now, the proverb is about the sin of sloth, what it is and why it is so dangerous. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth. Uh, so the picture I get in my mind is, I don't know, someone probably in their trackies, which they were wearing to bed last night, uh, binge watching Netflix on the couch and they reach down to grab some nachos or something that their mum made for them. And then they can't even be bothered to exert the minimal energy required to transport them 40 centimetres back to their mouth. They just leave their hand in the bowl, marinating in salsa, and just keep watching slack-jawed and vacant-eyed. That's the image, isn't it? And then Proverbs starts to work its magic on you because it starts off as funny and a little bit absurd, and then as you think about it more, you go, hang on, it's a little bit wrong. And there's a tragedy to this picture, and in fact, you start to really get a bit angry there's something about this that just bugs you. Uh, for me, I just want to get in there and grab the guy by the shoulders and say, wake up, right? Pick up those dang corn chips, shove them in your mouth, get off the couch and do something. Don't waste your life. Uh, in fact, uh, the American pastor John Piper has written a book with exactly that title, Don't Waste Your Life. And in that book he says, God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display his supreme excellence in every sphere of life. And I think that resonates so well with what we've seen through the book of Proverbs so far, that we are made, uh, you might remember a few weeks ago we saw this, to receive and then reflect and return God's love and faithfulness with all our joy and energy. That should be our fundamental orientation in life. And that's why sloth is such a major issue in Proverbs and why the sluggard, as we see here, is so closely related to the godless fool. Because sloth is a fundamental denial and short circuit of your very purpose for existing. It is when you receive the energies of God's good gifts, here in the case of food, but instead of using that to energize you in service for the good of others, you try to terminate the process on yourself, try and hold in the good to yourself. And once you do that, it's ironic 
but the very food meant to fill you with strength and energy ends up sapping you and leaving you like a self-indulgent spiritual zombie. Uh, I have two writers for you that have thought a lot about this sin of sloth. Uh, One of them is Richard Niehaus, and he says, sloth is evenings without number, obliterated by television, evenings neither of entertainment nor of education, but a narcotic defence against time and duty. And I must admit, uh, as I think about some of my evenings over the last little while, uh, it cuts a little bit close to the bone. Or Tony Reinke, another writer, says this, sloth is trying to preserve personal comforts through the confectionery of endless amusements. Sloth is a chronic quest for worldly comfort that compounds boredom, boredom with God, boredom with people, boredom with life. And uh, as I thought about this quote, uh, what really struck me is that I think this accurately describes one huge reason in our culture and context why seeking to bring the message of Jesus to our friends and family can be so hard. And that is here in Sydney, we live under such a haze of affluent materialism and pleasure-seeking hedonism that just caring enough about anything is one of the things that makes people most resistant to God's claim on their lives, isn't it? Uh, Here are some lyrics from a very popular song in 2010, Bruno Mars, The Lazy Song. And he says, or sings, today I don't feel like doing anything I just want to stay on my bed, don't feel like picking up the phone, so leave a message at the tone, because today I don't feel like doing anything, nothing at all. Uh, Or what about this meme that I found about selfie culture? I really like this one. Um, uh, The tagline reads, never before has a generation so diligently documented themselves accomplishing so little. (laughs) Uh, Now, it's a meme, you know, it's a caricature, but there is something to it, isn't it, about our culture? It is a serious spiritual battle. Because at the end of the day, whether you reject God deliberately and in hostility, or just because you couldn't be bothered, bottom line is, if you reject God, you are headed for eternity without him in hell. So this proverb says we need to be wise, and as God's people, we need to keep exposing that self-defeating stupidity of sloth and ask God to open people's eyes and and energize their spirits to him because at the end end of the day, only he can do it. So I want you to ask the question, who in your life needs your prayers like this? Who do you know that is numb to their need for God? So I want to challenge you, um, keep their names in mind, write them down and commit them to regular prayer to God, that he would awaken their eyes, open their hearts, energize their spirits to him. Uh, but, but, as you look at the sluggard here in 1924, perhaps you realize, uh, like I do, it's not just them. It's me too. And again, how often do I see an opportunity to serve other people in a costly way or do something for God that is out of my comfort zone? And then my heart just goes, meh, nah. Just, just sit there with your hand in the bowl. We've got to fight it too, don't we? 
And the thing is that when God challenges you to do something outside your comfort zone for him and you actually take it on, uh, like we heard from Patricia, it's always worth it, isn't it? It's always good. And so again, I think this proverb challenges us uh, to say, will we keep praying and asking God and seeking opportunities where God challenges us and keeps us energetic in his service? Okay, two quick notes before I move on to the second point. Uh, first, I want to clarify, because I think it's really important, sloth is not exactly the same thing as laziness. Okay, they can be closely connected, um, and laziness, I think, can spill over into sloth, but we need to actually carefully distinguish them. So I reckon a good definition of laziness is laziness is, is basically deliberate inactivity which in its right context can be a good thing. Uh, so for example, uh, God willing, on Monday week, uh, I and my family are gonna leave um, for six weeks of long service leave in North Queensland, and there will be much laziness on that holiday, let me assure you. Uh, but I think that's a really good thing because I think we're all feeling pretty tired and uh, pretty strung out. And actually having this provision, very generous provision, we're very thankful for to recharge the batteries by doing absolutely nothing. It's going to be great. So not quite the same thing as laziness. Laziness is deliberate inactivity. Sloth is spiritual apathy. Okay, so it is a failure of your heart to love enough to do the good that you should. So laziness, deliberate inactivity, sloth, spiritual apathy, failure of your heart to love. Second, um, I'm also very aware that physical and mental illness and stage of life, uh, they are real things and they have real consequences um, on us in a fallen world, but they can make this issue very complex and guilt-inducing. And so if you're hearing this, we should give all our energies for God, we should challenge ourselves, step outside our comfort zone, and your response is, I know I should have the energy to love and serve like this, but I just don't. It may be that you just need a rebuke, but it may also be there are real physical or psychological factors, or both, that actually keep you from being able to engage your energies the way you would want to. And if you suspect that's you, I want to say, please do not at all feel guilty for that, but do seek help and talk to someone, uh, a health professional, one of the ministry staff. Uh, we all need help from time to time. There is no shame in admitting that. And as a Christian fellowship, we should be at the forefront of understanding that and helping out our brothers and sisters to find energy um, and to find refuge when they don't have energy so that they can keep on giving themselves in service to God. So please do that. So sloth is spiritual apathy. Second point, sloth is deadly idolatry. Uh, so this proverb has more to say to us because I think through it, God wants us to be deeply aware of why sloth is so dangerous. Now, there are lots of proverbs about sluggards throughout the book. But again, I just want to focus on this one in particular because this one, its particular issue is food. And I actually think it's really helpful to think about the proverb in its ancient context. That is, back then, the only people who really could 
sit around hand in bowl would have been the very rich. Okay? Only they could live lives of excess like this. So this proverb actually ties sloth to gluttony and greed. That is, maybe he can't be bothered lifting his hand to his mouth because he's stuffed himself silly already. And this actually links this sluggard to a deeply foundational sin. So in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul describes those who oppose God in this, uh, in this way. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. See, that is Proverbs 19.24's sluggard. In the end, he is an idolater. Now, he may not specifically worship a statue, but that's not what idolatry ultimately is. Now, what is idolatry? Idolatry is trying to find in created things the sole satisfaction only our creator can give. Okay? Idolatry is trying to find in created things the sole satisfaction only our creator can give. Uh, Tim Keller, the American pastor, puts it really well when he says that idolatry is when we turn a good thing, a created thing, into an ultimate thing, into our God. And here's his full description. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure, and if I lose it, life would feel hardly worth living. Oh, it's very searching, isn't it? And it shows why idolatry is so deadly. And that is because if you let go of God, who gives you life as your ultimate prize and goal, and invest your heart and hopes in something lesser, you let go of God, you let go of life itself and everything else unravels and you see this tragic picture played out in Proverbs 19.24. Right? We have a man so devoted to his appetite to consume that his appetite has consumed him. Now, this man has made an idol of food. Now, that may not be a particular danger for you, although when you think about how revered food and drink have become in our culture, uh, whether it's foodie culture, so I live in Newtown, one of the foodie capitals of uh, Sydney, and every night it's the place is heaving with people, um, basically making their way from restaurant to restaurant, seeking out the next divine culinary experience. So whether it's foodie culture, or else another strand that uh, I've seen develop is, what about healthy culture? Okay, so everything's got to be organic, non-GMO, you know, you can't have this, or you can't have sugar's poison, all those sorts of things. And so it becomes, you know, sugar is the deadly sin, and you've got to eat, I don't know, tofu or something. Um, or the third strand of it is sustainable. Okay, everything's got to have a carbon-neutral footprint and uh, be sustainable, otherwise uh, you're evil if you eat it, okay? So whether it's any one of those three strands, um, I think that shows you there is an elevation of food and drink in our culture that is actually verging on um, making it something almost divine. So it may be closer than you think. 
and I think for us here at Narrenburn, uh, it isn't that far out of our normal realm of existence, is it, to think, what is my next culinary adventure that I just must have? You must go and eat here. You know, it's, it's closer than we think. Or, or what about alcohol, which we know is such a huge destructive issue in our culture. You know, as a hard day finishes, uh, does your mind automatically long for that glass of wine you're going to get to or more? But even if food and drink is not what it is for you, we've got to remember that we live in a sinful world that keeps turning away from God and trying to drag us with it. Uh, in fact, we are the problem, aren't we? That there is something in us, in our hearts, and there always will be until Jesus returns that just keeps pulling us off course um, like a, a shopping trolley with a bung wheel. Okay, you try and drive it straight down the aisles and poof, you're banging this way and that. Uh, and that's like us, isn't it? Despite ourselves, we just have this constant tendency to go astray and let go of God and grab onto something else, sometimes when we least expect it. So I want you to look again at Keller's description. And I want you to think honestly, what is that good thing that could become for you an ultimate thing and consume your resources and passions to the extent that it sucks out your energy for God and others? Okay, what is it that you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life will have meaning, I'll have value, I'll be secure. I was just thinking about our context. What are some of the things that might strike us as particularly relevant? What about your work or financial security? If I have that, then I'll feel my life has value and meaning. What about your house or acquiring a house? If I have that, then life will be really worth living. What about your kids and their academic, sporting opportunities, their future? If, if they have that, then my life will be really worth living. What about travel and experiences? What about having a partner or being sexually gratified? Or even in our context, what about your ministry, uh, your being someone of importance here at church or Christian circles. Now, used in line with God's will, these are all really good things. But if you give them the place in your heart and hopes and resources that only God deserves and only he can fill, they become twisted into idols that damage and destroy you and those around you. And so Proverbs 19.24 says, guard against idolatry. Keep fighting and wrestling to the, keep that shopping trolley of your heart directed towards God, no matter how many times you bang into things. But how do we do that? How do we fight sloth, given that our hearts are so prone to going astray? Uh, and that's our third point. Uh, because it may seem surprising, but the answer is not just do more and try harder. Because if that's what you try, you just end up on the flip side of the sloth coin, which is workaholism. Or uh, Tony Reinke, who I quoted earlier, uh, he calls it busy apathy. And he contrasts it or, or holds it together with classic sloth, which is lazy apathy. So there's lazy apathy, and then there's busy apathy. 
And this is how he describes it. Sorry, I didn't get the quote on the PowerPoint. But he says, it's a full schedule, endured in a spiritual haze, begrudging interruptions, resenting needy people, but still driven by a craving for comfort. What he means by this is getting so consumed by activity and accomplishment and busyness, it actually ends up masking the fact you have no time or energy left for real, costly, loving engagement with family, friends, and God. So, have you ever come across someone who, even if you spend a lot of time with them, they just always seem so busy and preoccupied and thinking about something else, you never actually feel like they are present with you? Or someone who just runs so hard all the time and has such high standards and expects everybody around them to match those standards that you can never actually relax around them. It's always like, I've got to do something else. You ever been around that sort of person? It's quite hard, isn't it? It's quite awful. Uh, more pointedly, have you ever been that person? Uh, they can be pretty awful to be around, can't it? And let me assure you, it does not honour God or bring blessing to yourself or others to live like that. So if the answer to sloth is not activity and busyness, what is it? Uh, well, there's been some really good work done recently on the book of Proverbs that has shown that the Proverbs in the central section um, aren't as random as they may seem. There are actually links between the Proverbs around each other. And so what I want you to do now is look at Proverbs 19.24 and then just go back one proverb to 19.23. And there we read, the fear of the Lord leads to life, then one rests content, untouched by trouble. In other words, the antidote to sloth is not work harder, although that might be part of it. The antidote to sloth is actually rest. You see, the real tragedy and danger of sloth is that it is a distortion but it is so close to the truth that we have been made to need and to want rest. Okay? We can't just go on endlessly. Only God can. We, his creatures, are designed to have to stop and be filled by him. Uh, the British writer Christopher Ashe has written an, an excellent book about living for God, which is called Zeal Without Burnout. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and even the chapter titles alone, I think, are worth the price of the book, and an excellent description of what it means to actually rest. Uh, here are the chapter titles. Number one, we need sleep, and God doesn't. Number two, we need rest, by which I think he means leisure, and God doesn't. Uh, number three, we need friends and God doesn't. I always have a chuckle at this chapter title because it makes me think of, you know, God as a Nigel, no friends. Oh, I don't need friends anyway. Uh, that's not how we're meant to think about it. Uh, what it's getting at is we are not self-sufficient like God. We need the resources and the help of those around us, but God is indeed self-sufficient. Number four, we need nourishment and God doesn't. A warning, beware celebrity, that is that desire to make yourself the 
the terminal endpoint of good things, an encouragement, it's worth it, and then finally, a delight, rejoice in grace, not gifts. And by gifts, I think he means our abilities and strengths that we exercise. And so rejoice in the grace, not so much in what we do. So can you see here how Proverbs 19.23 and Proverbs 19.24 set up rest in the Lord and then sluggardly sloth side by side and invite us to reflect deeply on how to distinguish between them and to make sure that we use the gifts we receive from God for rest and energy rather than sloth and self-indulgence. And I think the key difference is whether the pleasure and energy you get from the created thing turns you towards God and strengthens you to serve others in grace and goodness or turns you inward on yourself and ends up sapping your joy and the joy of those around you. Rest strengthens you to give yourself in God-shaped love and faithfulness. Sloth prevents you from giving yourself in uh, God-shaped love and faithfulness. But as I said before, it can actually be a very fine line between the two. You can actually, I think, um, use a created thing in a way that crosses over and flips over between the one and the other. And so a really important question for us to ask is, how much is it right to enjoy a created thing before it becomes an idol? How much should I invest my resources in worldly things? And they can actually be really tricky to answer. Um, uh, I had a full explanation of this, but I think we'll just cut to the illustration of it, because I think that'll make it clear anyway. Let me give you an example of, of um, how I think something in my own life actually played both roles and flipped over between one and the other. Uh, so a few years ago, I contracted chickenpox, which as you know, as a kid is fine, just get a few dots and then you're done. Um, but as an adult, it is incredibly dangerous and it was awful. I got very, very sick and it took me um, months to recover. Uh, the pain was quite unbelievable and um, uh, the fact that my body was covered in scabs meant that essentially my life for a couple of months was, my one goal was lie in bed as still as you can so that as little as possible scrapes off. It was pretty disgusting, I'm sorry. Uh, I just want to reflect the awfulness of the experience. But one thing that really helped me unexpectedly was a computer game, right, which I hadn't really gotten into for years. But there was a game that was actually very, very helpful. It just took the edge off the pain, um, gave me a bit of relief so that I could actually sleep and get some rest and have some energy. And I, I can honestly say it was a good gift of God that gave me rest and energy. But then after I recovered, I kept on playing and actually ended up getting a little bit addicted. And so the game started cutting into my sleep and started taking my attention off my responsibility. So I, I was thinking about it when I wasn't even playing and it really started to affect my mood. So I got tired and irritable and lethargic. And so in the end, I actually had to delete it. Um, but do you see how that works? Uh, you've got a good gift of God which at one level and at one time in one context was used for rest, but then became sloth. And so I hope that gives you a little bit of a helpful diagnostic that you could maybe apply to different areas of your own life and activities and pleasures 
to stay on course. Is this thing truly helping me to rest and recover, gain energy so I can give and serve? Or is this thing giving me energy and pleasure that I try and hold into myself and actually others, um, uh, and it's detrimental to myself and others? And what I've found is that ironically, in a good way, the more I try to understand and use created things restricted in the bounds of God's character and purpose, uh, the irony is I don't get less pleasure out of those things. I should get more because they are in harmony and proportion with God's good intentions. So I hope that's helpful for you. Let me wrap up. Uh, How do we gain wisdom from the sluggard? Well, I hope you've seen already there's so much that we can learn and reflect on and be challenged by from this one uh, initially very obscure, random-seeming proverb. But we would actually miss the point if we left it there at what does it mean for us? Because you've got to remember Proverbs, like the rest of the Bible, is ultimately about revealing God's saving wisdom. And Proverbs 19.24 does this in a particularly striking way. You see, by giving us this portrait and image which is repulsive of a man turned against his own nature and purpose, the proverb should also draw our gaze to another man, a man whose hand is not held out in self-centred sloth, but actually held out in self-giving, saving service. So Proverbs 19.24 helps us reflect deeply on how wonderful the Lord Jesus is. And in fact, it gets even deeper than this because the rest that Proverbs yearns for, rest in the Lord, that is the true goal of our souls, only comes through the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. So let me finish with Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 to 30. And I just want you to hear the echoes of what we've seen in Proverbs 19.24 this morning. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it is only that rest in Jesus, in, in putting your life in his tender, gentle hands and trusting in his death and resurrection for you, that can actually give you the energy and the joy that you need to live and serve God as you are designed to do. So brothers and sisters, will you do that? Will you find rest in the love of Jesus for you and then reach out with all your energy in love for him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you have made us to give our energies joyfully in your service. And yet we confess before you that there are so many aspects of our lives and times in our lives where we have received good things for you from you but then tried to hold them in selfishly for ourselves and as a result have had no energy to serve you or others. Please forgive us for those times. Help us to learn 
this lesson from this sluggard that we see so clearly denying his purpose. And yet, Father, in this world, uh, we are so beset by sin and by temptation, it is very difficult for us to walk that line between resting and being energised and giving and serving. So would you give us wisdom to know how best to do that in our circumstances, with our personalities, with the strengths and weaknesses you made in each one of us? But would you give us all wisdom to be able to know to how well to receive good gifts from you and turn them into energised service for your son? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.